Welcome to Ease, the entertainment and showbiz experiences podcast. It's all things entertainment based, how to get into it and how to develop it into something once you are ready to move on. All the information people didn't tell you, forgot to tell you, or were too busy to tell you, all told through personal experiences. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This week, I have artist and resident and musical director extraordinaire Tammy Holder on the program. We discuss how she started playing the piano, how she started directing musicals in her school, college, the French woods, bus and truck tours, and 20 years living in New York City. We also take a closer look at what she does every day as a teaching artist at the Broward Center Education Department. Finally, we discuss how the pandemic is affecting our classes, our students, and how we're going to see theater from now on. Take a listen to this week's one-on-one with my colleague and friend, Tammy Holder. Enjoy. Welcome, Tammy Holder. How are you? I'm great, TJ. How are you? I'm doing so great. I'm so happy that you, um, you're doing this, uh, this interview with us. Um, I want to let people know who you are and what you're doing now. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Um, My name's Tammy Holder, and I am currently the artist-in-residence at the Broward Center for the Performing Arts in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Awesome, awesome. Artist-in-residence, what does that mean for somebody who might not know what an artist-in-residence does? Um, I always joke that it depends on what day it is. Um, (laughs) I'm very fortunate in that my job is so um, varied. It, It really literally depends on what day it is. Overall, um, I work primarily with the education department at the Broward Center, and I, um, I assist in developing education programming, um, developing classes for all ages. I also work with the school district and um, develop ways to use arts integration, um, art strategies to teach academic subjects. Um, so that's been some really exciting work. I also um, help with, uh, I direct productions. Uh, We are a pilot production site for MTI Junior Musicals, so I put together the shows. Um, I do a lot of work with developing workshops, so when a show uh, tours and comes through, I try to make connections with the cast members of those shows and then provide experiences for our students. Plus, you know, as artists in residence, I get to do uh, cool stuff around the Broward Center, like turn pages for Josh Bell's accompanist, or play piano for, um, a, you know, a um, reception, a beautiful reception, or go to a luncheon with a uh, black violin and a group of um, guests from Qatar. So it just depends on what day it is, CJ. <laughs> yes, I know. Tammy and I worked together at the Broward Center. Um, you, you and I had a conversation almost a year ago um, about getting involved, and I just am always amazed by all the amazing things that you do. But speaking of all those amazing things, how, what's Tammy Holder like growing up? How did she get into this? Um, this is a wild, wacky story. Uh, talk about a crazy path. Um, I grew up, I grew I'm going to have to kick in the accent because I grew up in rural <laughs> North Carolina. Oh, and nice. my daddy was and still is at age 90, a Baptist preacher, Southern Baptist preacher. Okay. And mm-hmm. I started taking piano lessons when I was seven. And the primary reason for me taking piano lessons was to play at church. So mm-hmm. the first, my first gig, if you will, was playing for uh, my dad's service in church. And um, so I always played piano, all you know, going through school. Um, my freshman year in high school, um, we did a musical. We did The King and I. And the band teacher didn't play the piano, and I did. And that was my first music directing um, job was being the music director as a freshman in high school for The King and I. And then the rest is history. Wow. So you really got that start. I mean, music directing pretty young, freshman in high school. Did you want to continue on into into college or what path did you take after after those? So I always... uh, Playing the piano was my primary passion. Even, you know, like most, a lot of times through middle school, kids go through that. Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Kind of, but it was, pe- playing piano was always my thing. And it was, it was who I was and how, just that was what I did. I played piano. And um, so getting the music theater bug as a freshman, that turned the path just a little bit. I fell in love with musical theater. I fell in love with playing for shows. And I fell in love with just the cool collaboration between mm-hmm. the music director and the singers and the music director and the choreographer. And I just felt like even when I first started doing this, that the the job of a music director was so cool because you literally were pulling all the pieces together. 
Um, so I went on to college and I studied piano performance. I went to mm. a small liberal arts college in Raleigh, North Carolina, Meredith College. Um, I had a, an amazing, amazing uh, piano professor. Um, I was this loud, bombastic, just, you know, a lot of flash, but not a lot of technique in, in my playing. And this uh, dear man, James Clyburn, he's no longer with us, but he took this crazy kid who had some skill, but he, he developed finesse and he developed just sort of a, a musicality that I didn't have. And so I worked with him as a piano performance major. And then also I picked up um, music education, but all the while I was still doing music theater. So I would music direct the school, the college productions. Then I started saying, hey, wait a minute, I get paid to do this. So I started music directing uh, for a different community theater. So um, it was something that, you know, that stayed with me. I graduated from college with my degree in piano performance and music ed. And became a choir teacher. I was oh. a chorus teacher for um, four years. I taught middle school and high school um, in Wake County. I was at Wake Forest Roseville High School. And I built this program. And for the, uh, one of the first things I did was, let's do a musical. They had never done a musical at that school before. So we started doing musicals. And um, after my fourth year, I took a group of students to New York. And I had always mm. had the dream, I'm going to move to New York and play on Broadway. I'm going to do music theater, you know, in New York. But then I'm like, how do I get from being a choir teacher in North Carolina up to New York? So we had a tour guide. And um, I asked him, I was like, how do, you, how do you find out about jobs up here? And so that was back in the day when Backstage was an actual mm. physical paper. Mm -hmm. Backstage mm -hmm. is the trade paper with all the auditions and job listings. And my, my tour guide, I wish I knew who this guy was because he was the, really the, the point of turning for me. Um, I got this paper and in it uh, was an ad, uh, a performing arts camp in the Catskills, French Woods, was uh -huh. looking for a music director for the summer. I came back, brought my kids back from the trip and um, applied for the job, went and worked that summer um, at French Woods and I found my people like there mm -hmm. were everybody was there wanted to move to New York and do this thing, this music theater thing. And um, I was pretty much done with my teaching career. I always joked that it wasn't the kids that drove me nuts, <laughs> it was the grownups. And so yeah. I, um, I left, not as you should. I, I quit my job the day before school started. So I don't recommend that to anyone. <laughs> and, um, and I moved to New York and uh, was there for 20 years. Wow. Wow, 20 years. I didn't even realize that. I knew you had been to I knew you lived in New York and worked in New York, but I wasn't I didn't realize it was it was for 20 years. Um, but you you um said that you had tell us a little bit about your experience in college versus uh, thinking about if you didn't go to college, what would you be doing? If I didn't go to college, I mean, I think I think I'm on the path where I'm supposed to be. I think I would mm -hmm. have ended up doing this work. Um, I think for me, what I needed um, was the the developing of my skills and the opportunities to music direct, um, you know, beyond a high school play. Mm -hmm. um, it was as far as, you know, the whole music the whole college versus not, I mean, I advise kids now, you know, especially those who are, are dancers. I'm like, if you want to go do this now, go do this now, you know, mm -hmm. college, college will be there when mm -hmm. you are finished or when you want to go back to college, your 18, 19 year old dancer body will not, you know, so that's, mm -hmm. but for a music director for, you know, I think it was important for me to go have the music education skills. I learned about choral conducting. I learned about vocal arranging. I learned about orchestrating. So those were all skills. While I was I was training specifically to be a teacher in in a school, all those skills I have used, you know, many many times as a music director for for shows. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, the, I had. I feel like I had an aha moment too when I was in college. It was like, oh, I'm doing all of this. I'm doing all this, and then you get those little sparks of things that you didn't realize were going to happen in college, like little a class or a professor or just a performance that you're a part of. And you're like, ah, this is why I went to college. Like I'm getting these fun experiences. I mean, granted, you never know what it would be like if you didn't, if I didn't. But um, yeah, I really have all those, those fun things from college. So you're in New York 20 years. Tell us about New York, what you're doing, what, what the whole thing. Um, it's, that's wild. Like I, so I, I had a place in New York 20 years. I was probably physically in New York for 
10. I mean, well, I was, tra- I traveled a lot. So this is, uh, this is the full, like a full disclosure about people that live in New York, artists that live in New York. They're very rarely there in New York and they work rarely. other places. So continue on with that. Yes, yes, yes. So I, um, so I, I quit my job the day before school started and um, tried to move to New York once, ran out of money, mm-hmm. came back. Um, tried again. I went, I would go back to French woods every summer and reconnect with all those folks. And so finally, um, I met some, uh, some guys at French woods who were taking out a national tour of, get this, Gigi. Because everyone (laughs) needs to see the national non-equity bus and truck one night or tour of Gigi. But can I tell you probably one of the best um, professional experiences I ever had, because if I made it through that, then I was like, I can do anything. Um, but it was it was start, it was about building the network, and because a lot, mm-hmm. uh, so much of this industry is about the network. You know, they always joke it's who you know, but it kind of is who you know. Um, not in terms of, of favorites so much. I mean, sometimes it is, but more in people being able to speak to the quality of your work. Mm-hmm. And the more exposure you get, and the more um, opportunities you have to work with different people then the more, the bigger your network is. So I think, um, so I did that tour in 96 and um, the same uh, production company hired me to do their next tour, which was the national tour of Can Can. So we oh. did Gigi and then we did the national tour of Can Can. Back to Very back. French of you. Very so, French of you. Oui, oui. And um, so then after that, I did summer stock. And I always mm. tell, I think that's like boot camp for a music theater performer is doing summer stock. Unfortunately, I don't, they're, they're, you know, some of the old uh, places have closed down and, you know, I'm, I'm scared to see how many of them don't mm-hmm. bounce back from the, from closing this summer. But um, I went to Surflight. I was doing summer stock on the Jersey Shore. I was at Surflight Theater um, on the Jersey Shore, Beach Haven. And uh, I, we did six shows and it was in rep. It was like, I think it was well, I want to say it was one week rep. So we were rehearsing one show during the day, performing another show at night. And that went on all summer. And each show had a different director, a different choreographer, but I was the resident music director for the summer. Mm. And from there, that's where my network really connected. Um, so I, I was able to then, you know, leave that experience, did some couch surfing for about six months. Then I was staying with a friend, um, at his apartment in Astoria, was coming downstairs. The landlord was like, the people in 2F just moved out. I need somebody to go into this apartment right away. And I was like, I need an apartment. And I moved in that day. And so, and I stayed there for 20 years. That was back in 97. So 98, it was 98, 1998. And so I moved into that apartment in Astoria and I gave it up in 2018. So I didn't realize it was that recent that you were there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I gave up the apartment in 2018. I kind of started leaving New York well, or, or doing the whole Florida, New York commute thing mm-hmm. um, around 2008, 2009. So, but I okay. was there. But between like 2008 and um, 2000, those, those years through there, 2018, I was back and forth pretty much the whole wow. time. What is, um, he, I think sometimes people don't realize, of course, all of our musical theater friends or people that live in New York or artists um, understand it, but people that don't aren't in this industry. What are some things that you struggled with in New York? I know you talked about apartments and couch surfing. What are some things that you learned that you're like, aha, this is why, this is what I need to know about New York? Um, the big, the biggest thing I had to overcome when I first got there was I was afraid to take the subway. So remember, <gasps> oh. good old rural North Carolina girl, blink, blink. I was petrified to take the subway. So I ironically know the bus system in New York very well because that's all I would take for my first you know, few months. And then I came to the point, I remember I was sitting outside the subway stop on 79th. It was the 2-3. And I watched this dear little old lady come up out of the, the subway thing. And I thought, you know what? If this poor lady can navigate the subway system, you will be fine. So I got over that fear. So that was one thing was just navigating. The other thing that, um, again, being a Southern girl, jumped into the fray in New York was um, the pace. Like it took, it, it was a lot to, um, to keep up. And then the other thing was just the standard. Like mm. there was there, you know, it's, it's the, the pinnacle of the, the business for a reason, because 
the quality and the level of proficiency that you have to have in your craft has to be, everybody's good. That's given. You mm-hmm. wouldn't try to go there if you weren't good. So that was something that kind of smacked me in the face early. Um, I had the opportunity to audition for um, one of the, it was one of the musical supervisors uh, from Beauty and the Beast. And I oh. auditioned for him. And I thought I would, gonna, I would be in the pit for Beauty and the Beast that night. Well, no, I finished playing for him. And he looked at my resume and he said, you need to clean up your playing and get some more professional credits on your resume. Thanks for coming by. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I can't believe it. So it, that was a rude awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I discovered that was a good thing was the family and the community that mm-hmm. you create in New York is, um, I, it, you know, it's, I miss that in Florida and, and I treasure that. I mean, it was, it was a, such a community. It was such a supportive network of friends and colleagues that, you know, you would share work, you would pass jobs along, you, it was everybody, it always felt like everybody was looking out for each other, at least in my circle that I was running in. So mm-hmm. that was something about New York that, um, that I thought was pretty cool. Oh my God, the, the subway, mortif- I was mortified. Like the <laughs> m- amount of people that come rushing out, that's what always got me. It wasn't, I never really worried about getting lost. It was just like the amount of people rushing out. I, at first I was like, this, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. And then I'm slowly, I, it's fine. I get lost, but just the amount, the hordes of people that are there is so impressive. And it really is, um, yeah, it's a sight to be seen, especially on, um, when, uh, commute, working commuting hours. It's definitely a thing. Oh, that was crazy. I remember when I figured out the express versus the local, like it took me forever to figure out why if we would pull into 42nd street, all of a sudden, if the train was across the platform, half the train would just get up and run to get, and I'm like, what is happening? And so one day I just jumped and I was like, okay, this this is what this is, the express. So yeah. yeah. And then those early morning auditions, like that you had to go from uptown to downtown on the, on the, you know, the daily commute, morning commute with thousands and thousands and thousands of people to get off the train for thousands and thousands and thousands more people. It was, it was awesome. It was scary. It was all of those things. Um, but you were speaking about communities and you also mentioned, um, non-equity one night bus and truck sort of situations. Will you explain to us what that is versus something like an equity tour? Okay. So, um, Equity is the union. Actors Equity Union um, is the the actor is the union for actors. Mm-hmm. And um, when there is a production that's an equity production, there are very specific rules and schedules and expectations and salary that are determined per you know the equity contract. Non equity one night bus and truck, all bets are off. So it's <laughs> basically. You work for whatever they offer you and you do, I was, we would literally drive like four or 500 miles a day and we would get to a town and um, I, I've, I always joke that I've traveled to 48 of the 50 states and I can tell you about the Waffle House, the Super 8 and the theater in every one of those states. So that's the, my, uh, that's my travel, but we would, we would roll into a town around four o'clock, drop our stuff at the hotel, go to the theater, do a warm up, do a sound check. It would be me and eight guys walking around these downtown areas, all dressed in black, kind of weird looking. And then we would come back to the theater, do the show, go back to the hotel, get up at six o'clock in the morning, head to the next town. And I mean, that we did that every day. There would be, um, for an equity tour, they sit down at least two weeks, sometimes two or three months. So, you know, with a, with an equity tour, um, you actually get to enjoy the places where you're playing and get to know the, the communities a little better, but yeah, one night bus and trucker, no, that's a, it's a, it's a show. And then you're on the bus again. I spent so much time. I learned how to knit on that. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. was a skill I picked up. Um, but it was again, friends for life. Like some of the people Mm -hmm. that I met on that first tour, you know, we were, we, um, I think there was one, we had a tornado when we were in Arkansas and then there was a blizzard when we were out West. And I mean, it was just, you know, the dealing with, um, traveling across the country on a bus and mind you, this was 1996. So mm-hmm. we didn't have our little iPods. We didn't mm-hmm. have our iPhones. You couldn't watch Netflix. We had a VCR yeah. that 
we got to, we would go to truck stops and get movies. And mm-hmm. every day somebody was voted the bus queen and the bus queen got to pick what movie we played. Yeah. And so you read a lot of books, you watched some bad movies and, but you had some really good conversations with people who are still in my life today. So that's yeah. the difference between uh, those two things. Yeah. The simpler lives, you know, just voting on which movie it was going to be on the bus. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like, it's going to be this or this. And that's, that's the extent of your entertainment for so many times. I remember going on trips, even to like Orlando and it was, we could choose one movie and the whole bus had to choose what it was because it was like those old airplanes too, where the, where the monitors came from the ceiling <laughs> yes, yes. and the whole plane, you had to watch the same one. Same Yeah. So you mentioned uh, working at Broward Center. Um, how did you get involved with Broward Center moving from, I know you said from 2008 till, uh, till, till about 2018 when you left fully New York. How were you doing that commute and what brought you down here to Florida? Um, crazy story. I was working for Royal Caribbean. That's what okay. got me moving down to Florida initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a good buddy who was a vocal director for Royal Caribbean and um he told me, he was like, you know, it's a fun job. You should try it. So I interviewed and did it. And so starting in 2008, I started um, vocal directing the shows for Royal Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And the way that worked, there was a um, like a five-week rehearsal process in the studio. And then I would do sometimes two weeks on the ship to install the new cast. Mm-hmm. So it was like a five to seven week project. So I would come to Florida, do that. And then I would go back to New York and mm-hmm. did all my New York stuff. And so I went back and forth. Um, with that for a, for several years. Um, then I met a boy. And after I met the boy, I was like, eh, maybe I want to be in Florida a little more. And then I started um, looking for, uh, you know, I, I was ready to move on from the cruise ship uh, mm-hmm. world, very specific, um, a very yeah. specific industry. And um, I loved it. I met some amazing performers, got to see some cool places. Um, but I was ready to move on. And mm-hmm. so, um, John, my husband now, he and I would go to the Broward Center frequently just to see shows. And so I was like, ah, you know, I taught a lot. So when I was in New York, I was a teaching artist, um, you know, and played and taught for different organizations. And so I just I literally Googled Broward Center Education Department. Sharon Brooks's name popped up mm-hmm. and I just sent her an email. Hi, this is me. Here's my resume. Blah, blah, blah. One of the ladies on the, uh, one of my references was a, um, a friend, a mutual friend of mine and Sharon's, Dr. Liz Dressler. And Liz and Sharon have known each other for 25 years from being um, partners with the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. So when Sharon saw Liz's name on my, as one of my references, she, I got the interview. And so here's, I love this part of the story. I showed up at Sharon Brooks's desk the day they broke ground on the new education center. And Uh-oh. so I literally walked in and I was like, Hey, this is what I do. Blah, blah, blah. Do you have any work? And she's like, not yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she told me all about this new education center that was being built. And this was like around 2013. And, um, so they brought me in initially as a consultant because I was like, okay, I've done a lot of this kind of work around the country. And so, um, I helped develop the programming. And then when we opened doors in 2014, my consulting job uh, turned into a full-time artist in residence job. And so I still kept the apartment in New York, my roommate for a million years, Michael, um, he was still there. And so mm-hmm. I still had the apartment and, you know, I was, I was still back and forth a little bit. And, um, but when the, the program took off uh, here at the Broward Center, then I was like, and then Michael moved to Wisconsin. So there went the apartment in New York and, and then I got married, and so now here I am in Florida. Awesome story. Question, rent-subsidized apartment in New York? Can I tell you, when I left, when I got the apartment, I love saying this, it, I got the apartment, it was $749 <gasps> for a two-bedroom in Astoria. In 20 years, my rent went from $749 to $1,150. Wow. In 20 years. So that was, yeah, I, that's why I didn't want to let the apartment go because yes. I'm sure he flipped that thing and he's, char- he's charging at least, you know, 18 to 2000 for this two bedroom. So oh, definitely yeah. even more than that. I Probably. Mean, right. Those rules with rent subsidizing makes it, I mean, livable in 20 years it raised what? I mean, a lot of people think, oh gosh, $400 raised, but in New York standards, $1,100, two bedrooms, you can't find it. No, you're not, no. you're not finding that anywhere. 
No. And that was over 20, like it would go up maybe 40, 50 bucks a year. Yeah. Which was nothing, you know, and it just accumulated over that time. There was, I mean, there were, there were issues, you know, like, cause I traveled so much and it was about finding a subletter, a subletter yeah. that comes in and subletters are illegal. And my landlord, I mean, you know, so there was just always some drama over, um, I had a lot of cousins. Come yeah. to stay with me. <laughs> yeah. You've got a lot of family. A lot, a lot of, family of family coming to visit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I know it's one thing that I never did. I never had a um, never had a sublet because it was always that thing. How do I find somebody that's going to stay there long enough? And my, my landlord. And but I always thought these people have to be my family. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you mentioned something that actually kind of scares me a lot. But you just reached out to Sharon Brooks in an email. I did. Straight up. That's- and that's no, that's what you got to do, you know, mm-hmm. you because in this in this industry, you and, you know, unless you have representation and not many of us do, especially in what I do, you know, like as a music director or a teaching artist, you are your own marketing department. Right. And so it's reaching out. It's making these cold calls. It's making these like, hi, letters of introduction, emails of introduction. Again, going back to the network. So important. If she had not recognized the name on my resume, that might have gotten just pushed. Oh, okay, somebody else, you know, sent in an email. So I, you know, I, I've sent, I can't even imagine how many letters of introduction. And, you know, sometimes things connect and sometimes they don't. But they'll, I always joke, I'm like, Broadway's not going to come calling you. You know, you, right. have to, you have to reach out and throw yourself out there. Yeah, putting things. I don't know why it mortifies me, but you know, it's it's just an email. The worst thing that can happen is, like you said, she just doesn't answer. You introduced yourself. You made you made that effort, and then it's now it's up to them with how they right. see it. Well, and that's I mean that's totally how I met you, right? We yeah. had a mutual friend, Eric. Sent me an email. I I took your email because of the recommendation of our mutual friend, and look at us now making all this amazing art together. So I know. Speaking of all that art, so tell us a little bit about Bard Center, what you're doing there. I know you briefly mentioned a little bit about this arts integration stuff, but let's go a little bit more depth into that. Um, I am so proud of the work that we have been doing at the Broward Center. It's, um, I always joke that, you know, I've been doing this work for about 30 years, and I have, it's been amazing coming into this program and building it from the ground up because I was literally able to pull from so many different sources of experience and kind Mm -hmm. of put it all into one place. Um, so developing, um, the, the work just in the classes, like I have a performing arts group called the Broward Center Spotlights Mm -hmm. and these kids are amazing. You helped me with them and you know Mm -hmm. that their level of professionalism and the expectation that we both have of them is something that has been cultivated, you know? Mm -hmm. They were not the way they are now five years ago, six years ago when I showed up. So it's been really neat to, you know, provide the opportunity to carve the space for kids to excel and set the expectations so high. So I think with both the projects that we work on together, the spotlights, as well as our advanced musical theater class, Mm -hmm. where we have kids that come in and we do skills building. And then we use these kids to produce pilot productions um, of, of these shows for MTI. So I'm so proud of that work. I'm so proud and excited about the adult programming we have. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you start building a, an arts program at a performing arts center, you really think primarily kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I was like, I think there might be some interest from our adult students in the community and have had overwhelming response. Our adult classes sell out. Our adult classes are one of our most popular things. So mm-hmm. that's been something I'm really proud of. Um, we've been part of a, a program just in terms of the work we do with our partnership with the Broward County School District. Mm-hmm. We, um, we're a turnaround arts. Uh, we have turnaround arts uh, schools. And what that is, it's a, it's a program where underserved uh, and underperforming schools are infused with arts integration resources. And as a result, their test scores go up, their mm-hmm. discipline goes down. I mean, it's what we all know that arts changes in kids for the better Mm -hmm. um but just to see those kids and those programs and those teachers embrace the arts in a way 
that's beyond let's just put on a show it's let's mm-hmm. use the arts to teach math let's use the arts to you know build literacy skills and in addition to creating performers and creating kids who have confidence and and poise and they are able to speak in front of you know groups I mean these are life skills that they learn through the arts I've taken two groups from these turnaround art schools to perform on stage at the Kennedy Center mm-hmm. and I mean that's just you know I, I don't know if they quite realize the magnitude of right. that right now but you know one day I hope and I think just the fact that providing giving kids space to imagine and cultivating the ability to imagine I think is so vital in in developing um as a as a kid now even as an adult you know I think when we lose the ability to see what's not there you know that's when it gets scary so mm-hmm. I'm just proud of all that you know all that work and um you know I it's been it's been pretty cool yeah I'm so happy um of course I was very hesitant because I didn't know what this arts integration was when I first joined the project. So I was a little bit nervous and it had already been going for a little bit. So heading into it, I didn't know what to expect, but there really is this overwhelming need for it from the, from the kids, from the teachers, everybody appreciates um, the integration of the arts. And I had a different experience growing up and I always talked to the, to the classes about it. I was, I was, able to go to performing arts school. So I didn't know what it was like not having performing arts in my schools, but seeing a school that doesn't necessarily have that and how beneficial it was, it was was almost more eye-opening for me and more of an experiment for me rather than for the schools and Mm. for the the kids. I really appreciated all that. So that's a, it's it's a great, great um, project that Briar Center is doing. What made you switch from this passion of being on tour and musical theater to right into teaching kids or teaching youth or teaching adults. What made that switch in you? Um, I think the, I think I've always been a teacher. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I started. And I always loved music theater. Um, as far as, you know, pursuing the whole grind of getting in a Broadway pit, getting into, I think that I, you know, because I, I, when I was in New York, I play, I never played in a Broadway pit. That was the that was the reason for going up there, and I and I never did it. Um, and you know, I think that I was pushing very aggressively to do that when I first got there. Um, and like I said, you know, a lot of rejection and a lot of no's. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stepped back a minute. And most while I was trying to make this happen, my survival jobs were um, I was a teaching artist. So that's how. And then I was just kind of like, you know what, this is some pretty amazing work. You know what, I might not be a Broadway star, but I'm going to make a few in my career. And Mm -hmm. so that's sort of when the shift happened was when I was like, okay, I think that that this is something that I have to offer. You know, and do I miss playing for shows? I do. I do. I love that's still my favorite thing to do is just to play for people to sing. And, you know, I used to play for auditions all the time and I used to play for different cabarets and programs. And that's a part of, of my, um, my time in New York that I miss. I've done a little bit in Florida, Mm -hmm. but the, the bulk of my work has been as a teaching artist. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's, it's a different, it's a different energy and it's a different way to use your talents and your skills. Um, you know, I hate the thing that people say, if you, those who can't do teach, I think that's just absurd. And I'm like, you know, those who do really well, really should teach, you know, because that's Mm -hmm. the, that's the, that's who you want is people who have reached a, a level in their craft that to have the opportunity to share that I think is really important. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the the quality of artistry that's in New York, and I think you're you're absolutely right. You want somebody that's going to be ingrained in that quality and be able to help produce the next set of youth to with that quality in mind. And I and I have to say, ever since ever since I started at Bard Center with their with their education program, really working closely with you, you see the quality that's being offered to them and the expectation for them to get to that next level is there. And it's, it's always jaw dropping for me because there's like, a, I always think, Oh, I'm going to set this really high expectation and hopefully we'll meet it somewhere in there fluctuating. But then I always have to reconsider and say, I have to set a different expectation because that one has already been achieved. That's it. And 
it's every even short programs for 10 weeks 10 12 weeks long and after six weeks i have to reevaluate and say okay i have a new expectation and i have to do new expectation and speaking of expectations and what um sadly enough we've had to move a lot of these classes and courses to uh, a virtual platform tell me about your expectation of the platform versus being in person what have you learned um, again, you know, it, I'm continuing to learn and to develop. And just when you think you got it all figured out, something like this happens. And I, I immediately started the shift. Like we had our last in-person class was March 14th mm -hmm. and we had a rehearsal for something rotten junior, the pilot show we were working on. I told one of my student assistants, I said, before we walk out of here today, you have to tell me, you have to figure out a way for us to connect virtually. Like I had heard of like Google Hangouts and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I said, go figure it out. I told Addie, go figure it out. So before we left the last day that we were all together, we already had a Zoom class set up. And so I, I, I don't know if it was more self-preservation and just to sort of escape what was really going on, but I just immersed myself in trying to figure this all out. I watched videos. I went to webinars. Um, iTheatrics is a, a group out of New York that I have some colleagues that I've worked with and know, and they were really leading the charge with this whole Zoom uh, online virtual thing. And I just jumped in and I, and, and I had to, I had to keep connection with these kids. I had to keep figuring out how to make art with these kids, even though we weren't in space together. And so it, there was a little bit of a learning curve and mm -hmm. I was fortunate to have access to these kids who were basically, you know, like a guinea pig class where I would call them in and I'm like, okay, let's, you know, let's try this out. Let's figure this out. You know, the first thing I learned was we can't all sing together at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so as a music teacher having to say, okay, everybody put your mics on mute. We're going to have a rehearsal that has pulled a part of my soul out that mm -hmm. I need to put back. And so that's been just, you know, but I think with that, that puts more of a responsibility on the student to achieve the same level of excellence and it have the same, I still have the same expectation. I'm just not there hearing it in real time, but they know, they know when it's right and they know how to make it better. And so I think that it's it's developing the skills in a different way. And I think it's more of the student discovering what they're able to do and what they need to do versus a teacher demonstrating and they copy it, you know? So mm -hmm. I think it's shifted the way that an arts class uh, is conducted. You know, I think it's been vital to stay connected through the arts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what every, I, I when I first, uh, we went into quarantine. I started doing this thing on Friday nights, Tammy time. And yeah. I would just sit in front of the computer and I went live on Facebook and I would just sing show tunes. And this crazy thing was getting like almost a thousand hits when we first started because everybody, it, and it became, you know, just a chance to come sing. But then you would watch all the conversations in the chat and people are connecting. And I go back, it's that community. It's that arts. It's what pulls us all together. And mm -hmm. it's, it's people from all walks of life having the same experience at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what the arts is all about. And I think that that's why there's been such a desperate um, need, you know, for for people to to connect through the arts. I know a lot of artists have found this time to be a period of they need to be quiet and they've sort of shut down artistically. And I totally get and respect that. Mm -hmm. um, I swung way far to the other end <laughs> of the yes. spectrum and was like on crack. You know, I'm like screaming mm -hmm. chokes into a laptop, you know, every day. So um, it's I. I think what the key has been is to think of this more as a reimagining, mm. not a replication. Mm -hmm. We can't replicate a live arts experience virtually. You can't. You mm -hmm. just can't. You can reimagine what that would look like and feel like, and you can reimagine the expectations given what we have to, to be together in this virtual world. Um, and I think once I made that shift that it made this a lot easier and I was able to see and imagine and project possibilities, mm -hmm. whereas I was initially like, what are we going to do? You know, where when I got past, OK, it's it's not going to be like it was before. And that's mm -hmm. OK. And I think that, you know, like 
what happened back when the the Black Plague came? What followed that? The Renaissance. It was like the greatest explosion of artistic expression in all time. So I think that that's what this is, is that we as artists are being forced to reimagine our art and how and and just creativity in general. Yeah. It was the first time in my life that I thought my eight-year-old nephew knew more than I did because kids are on devices so long throughout the day. We always say, get off your device, get off your device. And it was, you know, come March, it was like everybody had to be on your device. You Mm -hmm. had to be producing a content. You had to get out there. You had to stay happy with yourself because you were quarantined. And I saw a lot of art pushing out. I saw a lot of people going. I saw push, 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 push. And then there was this cacophony of of too much stuff that it was hard to then siphon through. And then I've noticed people have fallen off. And the people that have stuck with it from the beginning and kind of evolved and reimagined how they were going to do things along the way have sustained. It's mm-hmm. been a long time. It's been since March, April, May, June. It's been four, four months, months. Yep. that we've been doing this. So there has to be some sort of drive within the person that's, that's doing these zoom things with these kids, with these performances. I mean, we've gone, you, um, had the charge with trying to continue this MTI project that we were doing together. And we imagine, reimagined what a performance could look like on mm. Zoom. Tell us a little bit about that. What are things that you liked about it and didn't like about that setting for a performance? Um, well, we, I mean, we started out with um, the idea of, of producing it in a Zoom format, mm-hmm. um, which was interesting. You know, it was, it was, Again, I go back to the the inability to force all to sing together. Mm-hmm. I think that's the hugest obstacle for me with this format. Um, I know that right now we're currently we've pivoted again, and I think that's been the key too is to be able to pivot mm-hmm. because when when we came down in March, we're like, oh, we'll be back in April for our show, no problem. Then it was like, okay, April's not going to happen. Let's move it to July okay, now July's here and, you know, we're not going to be filling up the amateur theater right now. So we pivoted. And I think that that's, that's, it's like the ultimate improv, the ultimate yes and. We're like, okay, new plan. So right now we're doing, I, I call it live Zoom. We're going to try to do this staged reading, which, you know, you've been amazing to take all the choreography that was set in the classroom and you're adapting it to a stationary spot that mm-hmm. the kids are going to be socially distanced apart. And um, I just think it's been um, it's been amazing to, to pivot the vision and to have creatives like you on the team that are like, OK, OK. And, and you know, like you redid the biggest number in the show yesterday. And I watched the video. I'm like, that's still a really cute number. I mean, it's still fun. So I think that, um, you know, and then we're still, what are we, July 3rd? We still don't know how this thing's going to go, but, you know, we're still pushing through and um, we'll just the ability to pivot and Mm -hmm. to to maybe reimagine the vision as we go. Yeah, I think my question about the reimagining is is something that I'm dealing with, too, working in. And we're all dealing with right now is we're reimagining what the performers can do. What do you think reimagining with the audiences can do and see and how? their their takeaway from a Zoom performance or their what their aspect is ever going to be in this live venue again. Right. Um, I think it's it's so it's the fact that we don't know that's so frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. You can't plan for what you don't know. I have found that performing for an audience in Zoom it's weird because you don't have the the exchange of energy that a performer thrives on from mm-hmm. you know receiving mm-hmm. from the audience and giving to the audience but in a weird way you you kind of get that like when i was doing these taming time things they, I would say something or I would do something and all these hearts would just flood the screen. And at first I was like, what is all this? And then I was kind of like, okay, you know what? That is, it's sort of a, a way to document what works, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're in a performance that you don't really know because the audience 
in a virtual world, they're really able to share their stream of consciousness, good or bad, (laughs) with you while you're performing in real time, you know? So um, I think that it it gives the audience an interesting power, if you will, um, to evaluate. You know, everybody's all about, you know, everybody's a critic and leaving something in the comments or the chat, you know. Um, but I think that it's um, nothing will ever replace a live performance ever, never, ever, never. Um, so, you know, moving forward, I, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. You know, like we're I'm going to a drive in tonight. We're all going to be in our cars, you know, mm-hmm. watch it, you know, which it's that whole thing about because the best thing I think one of my favorite things, like I mentioned, is it is the sharing of energy with other mm-hmm. people in a space. And that's gone right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I don't until we're able to gather in space. I don't think that can be replicated in a virtual performing space. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There is that sharing of energy. I told I was telling maybe that when I was teaching yesterday or some other class, I said, I still actually got the same feels that I would get if I was in live performances when I watched some Zoom performances. I saw my nephew's um, year-end performance at his studio and I was sitting in the class. I sat in and he was at my sister's house. I know the space very well. I know him very well, but I still got really emotional and I still got the chills that I would get because I was much closer than I could be if I was Mm. watching a performance and I could see how much he was loving it and he could see how much I was loving it too which helped Mm -hmm. so I still got those feels and I watch things online and I get those those feels because it's live that I might not have gotten if it was recorded um, which which I really really like Um, but speaking of this pandemic in your opinion or in your vision what do you think the long-term effect of this is going to be with performing and theaters and kids? Um, well, I mean, it's there's so many levels to that question. I think the obvious is just the economic impact it's having on people in this industry. I mean, mm-hmm. this is devastating as far yeah. as there is no work. And, and I'm thinking just specifically, you know, if you look at Broadway, there's no work. There's nothing happening for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And what is it? The the extra um, unemployment money runs out at the end of July, and and there's nowhere for these artists to get work. So I think that's the the red flag right now. That's that's the scariest. I have um, a dear friend who he and his partner run a costume shop, one of the major costume shops, and they have a staff of like 50 people. And you know, it's like, what are these people going to do? Because you think the actors, you know, but then there's all these costume people mm-hmm. and props and sets and. So I think the industry as a whole is just paralyzed because, you know, and then even Florida, if you look locally, you know, you've got all the employees associated with the entertainment stuff at Disney and then all the cruise Mm -hmm. ship industry. I just think our industry has taken a huge hit economically that I don't know that I don't know how we're going to bounce back from that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think what's going to happen is people are going to have to look for another line source of income. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to lose a lot of really talented people just because, you know, we're not able to be to sustain, you know, waiting, waiting, because Mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing to do. Like, I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to shift my teaching to a virtual, but I, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to, to, um, to have the work that you had before, you know, like if you were in a show. So I think that's the big thing. The other thing is that I just think, you know, with these kids, they, uh, these theater kids, just thrive on being with their tribe, being mm-hmm. with their people. And I think that, you know, yeah, there are, there are together digitally and virtually. I just think that, um, you know, I think that there's something that's going to be really, um, it's, it's kind of scary to think about that we've all been just so isolated for mm-hmm. so long and it doesn't look like that's going to come to an end anytime soon. Um, so, you know, I don't know. And then the, the, I go back to the singing, you know, you read all the reports and they're like, oh, well, singing is the absolute worst thing that you can do. It spreads the, you know, I read this report that they were like, they're singing. I was like, it should be, this made me think it would be a, a cool, uh, premise for a show. And there was this school system in London that was going to ban singing for the next school year because uh, of the safety concerns. So, I mean, it's just. I, I really sometimes can't think that broadly because yeah. then I get in my bed and cry. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I, I just try to deal with right in front of me. Yeah. But it's, 
it's scary, um, you know, but I do know that this work is important and it, it remains vital even more so now than ever. It's just going to be, how are we going to all survive with this new landscape? Yeah. And I'm so, like you said, you, you've been lucky enough to teach online in Zoom classes. I've been lucky enough to, to, to teach online in Zoom classes. It's, it's still, for me, I find the connection there. At least I could see their faces and I could see, it's not hard to read how somebody's day is going, even on a Zoom platform. I yeah. You can easily see if a kid is having a rough day or if they're feeling low or down. And I think I learned this from you is like, I let them ask them the question, how are you doing? And it's okay for them to say, I'm not good. Okay, well, at least you you said something about it and we can hopefully get through this hour and something good can come of it. And help mm-hmm. you. So it's, um, but yeah, the, the, the landscape of economic proportion is, is, I can't, I can't even think about it. You're right. No. Because it's, it's so sad. So many of, I'm sure your friends, my friends are completely out of work. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to go through your social media newsfeed and not feel the, the burden for them. And, um, because it's just endless, endless people, not just the actors, not just the people that you see on stage with everybody off stage, the costumers, the, the saint, the scene makers, the, the, the graphic designers that do all the, everything for them, people right. that sell merch. It's, it's just a, explosive thing but hopefully we'd hopefully hopefully that's right. it that's all we can no, really right. do right um tammy thank you so much tell everybody how we can find you on these tammy times are you still doing them on friday nights um i'm taking a pause okay. um i just i needed as i said i kind of went into this you know at 100 miles an hour and i needed to sort of step back and um, we're doing some stuff in the summer um mm-hmm. at the broward center that i refocused on that um but i um the broward center has some really cool um things that there's classes to go. You have mm-hmm. a good class on there to go. We So you can check out BrowardCenter.org mm-hmm. and then just our education at home programs. All my old sing-alongs are on there. Um, we did yeah. this cool Broadway chat series uh, for a few weeks where we brought in different Broadway uh, folks and had a little chat with them. The spotlights are on there if you want to hear some kids sing some cool mm-hmm. show tunes. So that's a good way um, to, to check out the work that we're doing at the Broward Center. And then I'm just on, you know, the uh, Instagram and the Facebook, Tammy Holder, T-A-M-E-H-O-L-D-E-R. Easy nice. to find. Yeah, that that uh, Bard Center um, Instagram in there, that um, page really has evolved greatly over it the really pandemic. It really has. It's yes. really fun to watch it. It's really fun. So follow those people. Follow those um social media things. Tammy, thank you so much. I really appreciate all this advice and just talking to you for the past hour. It's been so great. I love working with you. I love working with you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining in on the conversation. To view additional content, follow E's podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe and leave comments on the episode wherever this podcast can be found. See you next week.